Hello listeners, this is Matt from Uncanny Treks, and I want to take a moment to tell you about our brand new Patreon at patreon.com slash uncannytreks. On our Patreon, we offer lots of exclusive content in multiple tiers, including access to our brand new Patreon-exclusive podcast, X-Men 92 vs. Young Justice. On this podcast, we follow the same format as B5 vs. DS9, but with an entirely new focus on reliving the nostalgia of 90s X-Men animated series and comparing it to the fast-paced action of Young Justice. Both of these animated series have recently been renewed for new seasons, so we felt it was a great time to return to these two comic book-based properties. If you're interested in subscribing, please visit us at patreon.com slash uncannytreks, and you can always reach out to us on Twitter at uncannytreks. Enjoy the show, and as always... Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Galaxy's Greatest Podcast about the two great 90s space station shows, Babylon 5 versus DS9. We're a part of Uncanny Treks. I am Bob from Cascadia. That's Matt from the Southland. How you doing tonight, Matt? Doing all right. Uh, just just got the beat down from Bob about my uh, making fun of him within the uh, in, in the notes, so I've got to kind of be a little more solemn today. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. It, it, it was making fun of me. That was the issue. That was the issue. Yeah, yeah. All right. That way, way to fairly so, summarize so, it for the listeners. You son of a bitch. So, so we'll take this. Uh, we'll take this one a little more seriously today. Uh, we have a and now for a word. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna so we're looking at uh, Babylon Five season two episode fifteen. Now for a word. You don't need the and that uh, aired on May third, nineteen ninety five. That's the title of the episode. <laughs> yeah, and JMS needed an editor. All right. Anyway, <laughs> then we're also going to look at DS9 Season 3, Episode 18, Distant Voices, which aired on April 10th, 95. So, in the, yeah. a, in the A plot of, and now for a word, okay, it didn't kill me, ISN, <laughs> ISN, the major Earth Alliance news network, puts together a documentary pushing the Clark administration's line about the needlessness and costliness of Babylon 5 as Narn and Centauri skirmishes around the station escalate. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a perfectly succinct summary of the entire episode, yet someone felt the need to add a second line. <laughs> yeah, so hit us with a B-plot, Bob. I, 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 there is no B plot, Matt. That that a a a plot uh, encapsulates the literally the entirety of the episode. The listeners have all they need to follow our subsequent discussions. Now, well, just to let you know, in the B plot, the Satari have been using the space around the station as a transfer point for weapons to aid in the war effort. 
Huh, it almost sounds like Narn and Centauri skirmishes around the station are escalating, Matt. Yeah, but see, when I when I read skirmishes, I kept thinking that they were like fighting on the actual station. They are fighting around the station. What you put, uh, never mind. <laughs> You're, wow! Wow! Uh, so you're, you're you're not gonna you're not gonna die on the hill of that. Oh, we need to understand that the Centauri are smuggling weapons, which I don't. I would argue actually we don't need to understand for this episode. But I could at least understand that as an argument. You're going to argue about the di the distinction between around the station versus in the space around the station. No, no. What what I'm arguing is they're not actually wrestling like fist fighting in the station. Yeah, yeah, that's what you're arguing. You're arguing that yeah. there's a, distinct, a distinction between around and in the space around. Yeah, they're having a they're having space battles around the station, not fighting, fist fighting, punching each other within the station on camera for the ISN people. It's things like this that make me think human language was a mistake. <laughs> Speaking of uh, dystopian inventions uh, created to make us miserable, un afraid, and uh, unhappy, uh, let me just say that I really find, I think, the most dystopian element of the future of Babylon 5 to be that cable news is basically the same then as it is now. Yeah, they, they want a lot of sensationalism with their news, too. Like, think that this kind of mockumentary thing they're doing with this was done really well with The Office. You never actually hear the production crew speak. They never like sit down and interview people. It's just like, well, they they interview people, but you don't hear the question. You just hear the the people within the office talking. I feel like that was like perfection in a sense when it comes to like this mockumentary thing. Would you like watch a sci-fi series that was done in that style, Bob? Well, I, I would uh, maybe quibble with your word perfection, Matt, because can perfection in a degraded form really be perfection? So I don't know. Like, I, I can watch like a show like The Office or Parks and Rec and not be too bothered by the mockumentary style. I, apparently Trailer Park Boys does that too, and uh, some of my friends really love that show. I've never gotten into it. So I can... I can watch it without it bothering me, but I, it's not really a genre, or rather, I guess it's more of a form than a genre. It's not really a form that I love, and I'm kind of glad that I think it fell out of vogue sometime around 2012. Yeah, they did stop kind of doing it after a while, but for for in, in the early aughts, like, there were so many shows that had the same, like, format. And yeah, early aughts, so maybe even more so the late aughts, because like, like The Office starts in the early aughts, and then I, think, I feel like people really start are imitating it in the late aughts. Yeah. I, maybe, maybe my time's a little off there, though. Yeah. But I also want to add, that you don't think the most dystopian element is they still have, like, newspapers? No, I, I, I like a newspaper. I, every morning I go to the cafe, I, I get a coffee, and I read, read you know, the newspaper, then I read a book. So you read the legit, like, paper newspaper? Yeah, they usually have the Seattle Times and the Wall Street Journal out. And, you know, even though both papers are ridiculous right-wing rags, you can learn stuff from both. Yeah, I haven't touched a, an actual newspaper in 15 years. I mean, I'm too cheap to ever pay for a newspaper again. But, um, you know, when we were in college, I got the Times delivered to my uh, room. That was nice. Nice. Um, I, I will also say, like... So I guess if there were a full science fiction TV series that I was interested in for other reasons, I wouldn't let a mockumentary style stop me 
from watching it, but I wouldn't be very enthusiastic that they had chosen the mockumentary style. And I would, I would point out though, I can't think of any TV shows that have done this. I think there are some, a lot of like indie science fiction films that have, and the, it's not the original guardians of the galaxy. Cause the original guardians of the galaxy is like a kind of weird sixties team. I've never really read, but like the first comic series featuring the guardians of the galaxy from the movies, which is, you know, I think from like around 2005, six, seven, that era, it's written by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning, that comic series that runs, I think about 25 issues is told like mockumentary style in the comic where, you know, it's very like office influence where the characters are like drawn talking towards, you know, the camera in the panel. That's, that's interesting. I'm actually have to look at that. That sounds really fun. Uh, it's a good series. For a while, it was way the hell out of print, although hopefully they finally fixed that because they're really popular characters now. But like when the like right before when the first movie was coming out, I was trying to get the collections of that series and it was impossible. Well, going back to the episode, towards the beginning of the episode, someone says that Earth Force's military has improved enough to rival the other races. I think it's like a senator or someone says this. Yeah, Senator Quintrell. So, going so far as to say that if Earthmen Bari War took place now, within the timeline, they would have the upper hand. And then Sheridan disagrees with this later on. What are your thoughts on this, Bob? Uh, I thought this was kind of interesting. And I mean, you know, it's kind of a nice little hint about the sort of increasing authoritarianism and isolationism and, you know, kind of chauvinism on Earth. Yeah, I, I don't know, like... I, I think the show kind of fully wants you to sympathize with Sheridan already here. And uh, especially after seeing that prequel movie in the beginning where the Minbari just absolutely wreck the humans, it just seems deeply delusional on Senator Quintrell's part. Yeah, because I'm thinking, like, there's no way they could have really updated their military that quickly. With I mean, unless they were given some crazy technology from the Minbari. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, one one interesting sign is I think, I think this is right, that of the other five or the other four great powers, they all have artificial gravity on their ships, while you'll notice that a lot of the Earth ships are, are you know, they spin yeah. to create gravity. Yeah. So it's just like they're, you know, that, I mean, granted, that doesn't directly apply to combat necessarily, but it just points out like how far back and how much the new kids on the block the uh, humans are so like we're coming out like apollo 13 with like machine gun duct tape to the side of it yeah yeah there's there's definitely something to that i would say one of the things that mockumentary also kind of draws out is that uh you know jakar is not really good at this uh malari is so much better at working the press in his interviews that's because malari has the charisma bob while Jakar has the passion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, we are introduced to uh, a guy we've seen in the background a lot. Uh, his name's David Corwin. He'll never be that important, but he'll continue to be, you know, a regular presence uh, on the CNC or in the CNC. Uh, so we get his name and rank uh, because he's nervously giving an interview while Ivanova kind of gives him a dirty look. Yeah, that was that was a great scene. Uh, I listened to this fantastic intro cast called Down Below, 
and they just kind of go episode by episode with like, some people that have you know never seen it before. Mm-hmm. Kind of similar to what we're doing with me, but this was done probably 15 years ago, like at the beginning of podcasting. Oh, wow. Yeah, That's so- a... Yeah, I mean, hell, it's impressive they were able to get a whole... I guess they had eat, the DVDs were available. Yeah, they had, yeah, they were all watching it on DVD. So, uh, but they actually have their own names for these characters. So it, it, it's so funny that like that's the thing that they finally did give this dude. Just like nicknames for individual characters who aren't named. Yeah, but they give or, them like, they give them like actual names just because they see them so often that they're never named. <laughs> I can't remember. I, and sadly, I can't remember what this guy's name was before. But they they decided just to continue with it instead of calling him. Yeah, there there wouldn't be any big loss from not calling yeah. him Corwin. I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and. Also in an interview, we have Franklin, who keeps driving home your uh, interest in uh, making the point about the how much the Babylon 5 as a show loves to space people. Yeah, it really is the best way to get rid of your problems on a space station. Like, I don't know what else you're going to do. I mean... Well, I mean, not really, because the body hangs around. Yeah, but it floats, like, off into space. Well, I mean, I guess it does... Yeah, because like, I said the, the gravity from the space station spinning keeps it kind of in place. Yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, I guess you got to tie some rockets to it or something. I don't know. Yeah. I guess one thing we can give uh, ISN credit for, even though it's a deeply dystopian and off-putting news network, is uh, it does give us a lot of facts to hang our heads on. So we know that uh, 50 people have violently died on the station uh, in the first two seasons, which seems about right. And I'll raise you that, Bob. Delin says 250,000 humans perished in the earth Bimbari War. I mean... It wasn't enough to get rid of ISN, so clearly it wasn't enough. It really wasn't as many, I think, as, as people thought. That's, I mean, it's a quarter of a million people. That is a lot, but I mean, like, looking at, like, World War Two, World War One, a lot more people well, died. You're t- I think you're, t- you're mostly talking about ship-to-ship combat. Yeah, and right. talking and about then, cr- crew, crews, yeah. I didn't get the impression from my memories of the prequel movie that the Minbari are, like, big on targeting colonies or anything. But you get the sense that if they had actually gotten to Earth, or if they'd chosen to keep going to Earth, uh, it would be a lot more civilian casualties than that. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And then also another little statistic we get here is that the Norn have lost six of seven major engagements against the Centauri, so the Norn are getting their ass whooped. Yeah, yeah. One thing I kind of wish the show would make a little clearer is why the Narn are losing so consistently? Is it just that they're disorganized? Is there a technological gap? Because I don't get the impression that the Shadows are constantly helping the Centauri. Mm, I don't know. I mean, like I kind of just figured that's, that is the reason why, because Malari has the Shadows on the side, and it's just kind of a from where I'm at right now within this within you know within this episode mm-hmm. like I don't understand how much the sh- how far the shadows actually reach like what they I mean you 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 know because you've seen the whole thing but like my my understanding and this could be wrong but my understanding is that when the shadows are intervening in the war effort we 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 see it or hear it on the show because it's relevant okay that's my understanding. That might be wrong, but that that's kind of how I've always thought about it. I, yeah, I just, at this point now, I have no idea, like, if they are just attached to the Centauri ships or what, or they have, like, some, like, super No, no, because I don't think, I don't think the Centauri really know about the Shadows. Okay, so only Londo really knows because he made the deal with Morden. 
Yeah, yeah. Malari and Kato, I think, are really the only ones who know. And even Kato, I don't think, really fully realizes the extent of it. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Another interesting thing was that uh, ISN uh, and, you know, therefore, like, humans at large tend to think of the Minbari as being almost as mysterious as the Vorlons. Yeah, it's probably just based on, like, how they weird they look. That's what the humans are basing it on. <laughs> Although, I mean, if you think about it, like, the... The Minbari have been, like, kind of as inscrutable to the humans as the Vorlons, right? Like, they, you know, they nearly destroyed Earth, and they pulled back and surrendered for unclear reasons. Well, yeah, so. the, the Minbari are, like, the scary species to humans. They're the ones that truly yeah. almost killed us, and then the Vorlons just look freaky. I mean, that's... And they're mysterious. Yeah, but, I mean, the Vorlons also, you know, they, they have their threats, too, right? Like, you know, they, there was that thing in the first season where they... Uh, they killed the uh, scientist who in, had invented immortal life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, Deathwalker. Yeah, Deathwalker. Deathwalker, yeah. thank you. Um, so what did you think of uh, Jakar's backstory in this? So my understanding is that he basically joins the Resistance after his father was executed by the Centauri, correct? Is that yeah, it? and it seems like his father was basically a, a house slave, more or less. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. kind of sad. Yeah, yeah. yeah you, li- you like Jakar. He's, he's a militant guy. He's a militant yeah. guy. So, what were your thoughts on the subliminal messaging during the Psychor commercial, Bob? Did you catch um, it? I didn't catch any subliminal messaging that, but I trust the Psychor uh, implicitly. They're my friends. Um, you know, they they clearly go around and find uh, attractive milfs and you know take care of their kids, and that's good. Yeah, Psychor is your friend. Trust the core. It's that yeah, easy. Yeah. What 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 is? Why are you trying to poison me by talking about subliminal messaging here, Matt? <laughs> because I had to go and like pause the TV. To, to see what it said, and it took me uh, 10 minutes, so I want to make sure I put it in the notes. Because <laughs> listeners, I didn't go through the trouble just Googling what it said. I wanted to see it for myself. And yes, I had to keep going back and back and forth, over and over, until finally I hit the right frames. So. <laughs> All right. Uh, we do get our, uh, speaking of, like, randomness of this episode we get a, our dock worker eduardo is back for a, for a little interview there bob yeah but uh he he's been uh he's been cucked he's uh he's broken man he uh he doesn't care about uh labor militancy and the power of collective struggle he's just you know do, doing this bullshit liberal libertarian individualist ideology about trying to get ahead it's it's a shame i don't know what happened to eduardo's trade conscious trade union consciousness but you hate to see it Shit happens on B five, I guess. It's a it's a dangerous place, man. So, like, let's say, let's just pretend for a moment that you were a human during this time. You were on Earth, you know, watching ISN. Well, I mean, that's a really big if, man. That's a big if, but I'm just saying you're not hanging yourself or anything. Would you, <laughs> would you think better or worse of Babylon Five after watching this from their perspective? I mean, I wouldn't trust anything ISN told me, so I would probably. I don't know. I, I, I mean, I would obviously grasp that ISN does not want me to think well of Babylon 5. I would like to think, yeah, I would, if I were in the Earth Alliance uh, at the time, I would still be largely a pacifist in international relations, which I am. And I do think the kind of reactionary isolationists like Quintrell and President Clark do seem to kind of have a point that Babylon 5 seems more, not less likely to get humans involved in a war. I might limitedly agree uh, with the documentary's point, even as I hate, uh, even as I would hate the Clark administration and ISN. 
I would totally be like hand over my money to B five. I think it's pretty cool. Uh, that's uh, <laughs> that's sad. That's sad. So here, take my money, B five. Keep on doing the good job you're doing. I mean, can I just make a point that you know we talked really thoroughly and we said a lot about this episode, and yet somehow the the Centauri smuggling weapons never came up. Yeah, I realize that. Hey, quick question for you too. You think my pillow guy is on a uh, ISN? Oh man, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> I really hope Mike Lindell is Trump's VP pick. Oh, that w- that'll be so funny. You think he sells my pillows to aliens? <laughs> I, like- hell yeah, man. Hell yeah. I think he smokes crack, and then I think he sells pillows to the Vorlons and the Mimbari. Yeah. Uh, have- Michael Lindell is the funniest guy. You think they have, like, uh, <laughs> special pillows for, for uh, Mimbari and their different head shapes? Do I think Mike Lindell launched a crusade when President Santiago won re-election about how it was really votes from the Vorlon and the Narn that flipped it, that had secretly uh, infiltrated the voting machines uh, on Earth? Yes, I do. That's kind of, I, I just want to see those commercials. Oh, man. Like, imagine if you did. Have you seen any of Lindell's documentaries about the, the 2020 election allegedly being stolen? Yes, I, yeah, I watched that, yeah. Oh, man. Just imagine, like, instead of doing a mockumentary in this style, do a mockumentary in that style. (laughs) That would be awesome. Oh, God. I love love Mike Lindell so much. I mean, he might bring fascism to America, but he's so funny. All right. So let's move on to DS9, Bob. Now, I did not add a B-plot to to DS9. I appreciate that, Matt. That's a a gesture of respect, and I I accept and uh, enjoy your respect. Yes, yes. So, the A plot of Distant Voices. In advance of Dr. Bashir's 30th birthday, a Lethian, is that how you say that, Bob? Lethian? I think so. Yes, Lethian, yes, Lethian. I, so. I would not correct you on that. I would correct you on almost anything else, but not on that. He looked like a drowsy. He did kind of look like a drowsy, didn't he? But he, he's got telepathy that can kill you, Matt. So, a Lethian stealing a controlled substance tases Bashir into a coma where he confronts many aspects of himself, lots and lots of aspects of himself. So many aspects. Played by various members of the DS9 cast. So I've got the most pressing question I can come up with here, Matt. Is Bashir offering to help Garrick exercise in the opening scene a pass? Yes, I thought so, and so did Garrick. All right, then. That's settled. Um, another thing that came up in the opening scene between Bashir and Garrick, which to me was by far and away the best and most interesting part of the show, is uh, instead of having mysteries or detective novels, Cardassians have Enigma tales, which Bashir is very bored with because in the Enigma tale, spoiler, everybody's guilty. The only question is figuring out which suspect is guilty of what which honestly sounds like an awesome way to write a mystery tale, and I would love to read it, even though uh, Bashir is very bored of them. Yeah, I thought that would be really awesome, too. I don't know why like this hasn't been done. I think we probably need to write one of these, Bob. Sounds great. Sounds great. Although I can't think of one example that would sort of fit. Um, Murder on the Orient Express. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Everybody is pretty much guilty, yeah. (laughs) That's true. Spoiler, spoilers to people who haven't read that awesome novel. But if you haven't read the novel and we're going to watch the new Kenneth Branagh film, uh, I don't feel bad at spoiling it for you because that film looks awful. I mean, I saw the film. It was okay. 
I Kenneth Brano is such a hack. It's so unfortunate that he's the major interpreter of Shakespeare in Hollywood. It's very unfortunate. Nice. Major interpreter of Shakespeare on your resume. Bam. <laughs> All right. So uh, since you, you hurt me by saying that Murder on the Orient Express, the second film, is good, uh, I'm going to hurt you by asking, are you annoyed that you're now older than Bashir? Yeah, I'm extremely annoyed. Uh, when I learned the age of like fictitious characters, you know, grew up watching and stuff, and they're younger than me now, it like hurts. I also get annoyed when I learn like the age of actors and actresses, and they're like way younger than me, like to the point where it's like an example would be Margot Robbie. I didn't realize she was so young. Was she born in like '88 or something? No, I don't know. Hold on, let me because I'm pretty no, I, I'm pretty sure I think it was in the '90s somewhere. Oh my God, she's Hold a on. '90s child. Yeah, she's born in 1990. I was gonna say that I you, that usually doesn't bother me so much when I learn that, but man, that that one actually does kind of hurt. Yeah, I heard bad. Like she's like Harley Quinn at like 26. I'm like, <laughs> oof, oof. Yeah, it, it freaked me out. So yeah, that that was one. That's just one example though. There's like so many that when I find out, I'm just like, oh man, I'm so old at this point. But I mean, it's just painful growing old, and I think that's what the, the whole point of the episode is, and I kind of sympathize with Bashir. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing when you're older than Spider-Man, because Spider-Man is usually played as young, but when, like, uh, we have, you get past, like, Batman and Superman in age, that's deeply depressing. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 very sad. Like, let's, like how old is Robert Pattinson? That's a good question. Robert Pattinson, Bob, is he's 35. He's our age. So he's our bad. age. Okay, nice, we, nice. We can, I mean, it's a shame neither of us look as good as he does, but, you know. But the next Batman reboot, Bob, we're going to be sad. Oh, but I just, I just mean in the comics, generally, Batman and Superman are pretty much stuck at 35, yeah? Well, yeah, but they never age. But I'm just saying the actor, though, yeah, yeah. you know, you just always yeah. assume, like, yeah, Batman's older than me. I look up to him. <laughs> this is off topic, but I, have I ever told you that I, it's how wild it is that, like, you know, we hated Twilight when we were younger. And now, for me at least, I think, like, Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart are two of the best actors in Hollywood. Yeah, they just had to find their start with shitty movie. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, they both have, like, such good taste in, like, the roles they pick. Oh, yeah. Like, they're... They're, they're, like, in so many good, like, indie and indie-ish films. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm a big fan of both of them. Yeah, they're very particular about what, they, what they're in. So to get us uh, back on track, I will just note that everybody should get tased by an alien when they turn 30, like Bashir does. And uh, speaking of his birthday, I also, thought, I also thought it was particularly suggestive that in Bashir's kind of JFK, Marilyn Monroe fantasy, both Lita and Garrick are singing happy birthday to him. I don't, I don't, understand, I don't understand, Bob. What's the problem there? What do you mean suggestive? It's not a problem. I think it's awesome. What do you mean suggestive? I just mean that, you know, whereas... Many people imagine themselves in a JFK Marilyn Monroe scenario where, you know, the Marilyn Monroe figure is singing to them. Here it's Lita as a Marilyn Monroe figure, but also Garrick is singing to Bashir. Oh, okay. So did Garrett, was Garrick wearing a dress? Did I miss that? No, no, he's just at the party in a tux singing. Oh, okay. Cool beans. I mean, I, I don't Do you regularly have JFK Marilyn Monroe fantasies where uh, Marilyn Monroe and a man sing to you, Matt? No, Bob. All right, I, you don't, but Bashir does. And, you know, it's yeah. these type of differences that make the world go around, man. Yeah, yeah, they just, they just, yep. some people like having girls and dudes singing songs to them. 
and sometimes the singing of the songs, uh, you know, is a synecdoche or a, a prelude or foreshadowing to something else, Matt. Yeah, I mean, yeah. He's got, uh, uh, dare he, we he, say a more physical present for he's, one's birthday? He's, he's got great friends, Bob, the singing of happy birthday. I, he doesn't have friends there, Matt. He's just got, he's just got Lita and Garrick. That's all. Mm, those are his That's friends. <laughs> I mean, you know, friends can do fun things together, Matt. Yeah, yeah, like... Uh... Yeah, like be gay together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I was getting at. But oh, yeah. uh, you know, yeah, yeah. you had to you had to make it weird, very inquisitorial. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I didn't want to give you the satisfaction of that. We get it, Bob. There, I, there's queer yeah. subtext. We get it. There's queer subtext. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Everyone knows this. Yeah. Like I don't understand why people even like deny that Bashir even had like. Oh, but they do, Matt. Look at our look at our replies sometimes. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know why you would. It's so obvious. I mean, it's like right there. Well, Matt, there's a, the universe is full of very insecure people who, when not every single character on a show is a heterosexual, they get worried. Uh, yeah, that's just how some people are, Bob. Indeed, Matt. Indeed. It's tragic. It's tragic. Um, speaking of foreshadowing, uh, there is a nice little foreshadowing of the Tribble episode when all of the tennis balls fall out from a Jeffrey's tube, or although, although I don't know if you'd call it a Jeffrey's tube on a Cardassian station, but a bunch of tennis balls fall out from a uh, Jeffrey's tube onto Bashir. Is that queer subtext? Huh. I mean, you, know, you can get up to things in a tennis locker room. Like, I mean, you can get up to things most places, but you can certainly get up to things in a tennis locker room. So yeah. perhaps, yeah. yeah, perhaps, yeah. So I mean, yeah. I'm not, I'm not willing to say it's not. How's that? All the foreshadowing's there. I see it. I just, I, I just don't get it. I just don't know why anybody else would think like that. Like, he's, he's not. Like, I don't, I don't understand. We got inside the man's head, and it's there. Why didn't the writers of the show run with it? Because uh, the main producer of uh, the Star Trek in the '90s, Rick Berman, was pretty homophobic, and even if he wasn't whether the networks would have let them do it is questionable oh uh, yeah because like it's 1995 wasn't quite there yeah, yet yeah yeah especially with two dudes yeah yeah exactly exactly one other uh for bit of foreshadowing i did want to talk about i yeah, i think you're skeptical of this but i really do think that the show is kind of building to the revelation later that bashir has been genetically modified because i mean we have the we have the thing a couple of episodes ago with the Carrington Prize and him being very anxious about winning it and being nominated at a very young age. And then we have the thing here about, you know, the uh, Lethian in the form of Garrick uh, confronting Bashir about, like, making a very simple mistake on his final that prevented him from being first in his class. I mean, this certainly does seem to be, like, creating a pattern of... Bashir's like anxieties and self-sabotage about his intelligence that, you know, will later get paid off in the revelation that he was genetically modified as a child. Yeah. I mean, I, I can see it. I just don't understand. Like if it's just us with our hindsight though, knowing that happens or like if we were watching it at the time, if we'd even catch that. I mean, I, I, if you didn't know it, I certainly don't think you would catch it, but I, it's kind of a lot to just be coincidence. I mean, I guess it could be coincidence, but it's kind of a lot to just be coincidence, you know? Yeah, and we've seen a lot of this this season, too, so maybe this is when they were, like, hatching this idea. Yeah, I don't think they necessarily knew it in season one or two, but it seems like they have some idea of it here, although I, I don't think that's revealed till season five, so that is quite a while. 
yeah. But I mean, maybe they made some long-term plans because I do know that the first two seasons, Bashir, the the actor, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Siddig Elf. Yes. Fazal or Al- yeah, sometimes he goes hard. by Alexander Siddig too. Yeah, he, uh, you know, he thought he was going to be fired the first two seasons. So they didn't really know what they were doing with him. So maybe yeah. they like plotted out something for him for season three, and we're like, here by season five, this is where you'll be. So he stuck around and wasn't afraid to like, you know, lose his job. Yeah, yeah. One other thing that this uh, this episode made me think about, um, I don't really feel like the next gen or a Voyager do this, but DS9 really frequently has its cast like play like other voices speaking in their forms. Like they do that with the prophets pretty regularly, right? Where the prophets usually appear as like characters on the show. Right. And then I feel like there have been some other visions that have worked kind of like this, but you know, you specifically have it here where all of the characters in Bashir's head, you know, are members of the cast who represent different aspects of themselves. So it's just a kind of funny well that DS9 goes back to a lot that I, like I said, I really don't think Next Gen or Voyager does. Yeah, it really is freaky. It's like the, uh, the fi- they have the physical appearance of these characters, but they're all, like, possessed. It almost seems like there's just not, it's not their voice that's coming out. Now, yeah. I, I do I do ask, though, like, in the, or one of the earlier uh, Babylon 5 episodes in season two, this did happen in that dream sequence, right? Same kind of thing. Or was that supposed to be their voices? I think in the Babylon 5 episode, I took that to more just kind of be a prophetic dream, mm-hmm. which I don't think is exactly what i'm pointing at here i mean obviously they're related but i i I don't i don't think it's exactly the same as the phenomenon that ds9 is doing that i'm pointing to here yeah but there's enough of this happening in ds9 that we could probably like keep a count of this and like have like yeah although i I feel like we i i feel like we'd have to go back because like i feel like this has been you know definitely this has happened always happens when the prophets show up but i think it's happened one or two other times too although i can't think specifically what uh, yeah, when I guess it also fits too when Brile has his uh, he had there's a couple with Brile where he has like dreams and stuff and oh, same idea yeah. happens. So I don't know if that fits into are those like orb visions? Yeah, orb visions. So I guess yeah. that does fit with the prophets then. Yeah, although the orb visions don't always involve the prophets. So yeah, maybe maybe you're right that those should count too. Yeah. I did want to ask: Did you prefer this week's uh, torture Bashir episode or last week's torture O'Brien episode more? Uh, Bashir quickly growing older as his mind shuts down is extremely torturous. And I'd say that the, uh, the symbolism and all that bullshit he had to decipher only added to the torture. So. <laughs> you heard it here first, uh, people. Matt says symbolism is torture. <laughs> so, uh, is this why you got so inquisitorial about me reading uh, queer subtext between Garrick and Bashir? <laughs> I, are, are, we, are we touching some deep trauma you're, from an English class in your past where somebody yeah. made you spot the symbolism? Yeah, you're just, you're just pointing out the obvious, Bob. <laughs> it's, like, it's right there in our face. It's, like, it's not even like symbolic at this point. I mean, I, I thought the entire podcast was an exercise yeah. in pointing out the obvious, Matt. <laughs> so... All right, so yeah, I, I would definitely say the Bashir episode. What about you, Bob? Uh, I, I, did, I didn't love either. Uh, I mean, I didn't hate either, either. Uh, I don't know. May, I guess the O'Brien episode I would go with, but I, I don't really have strong feelings about that. Yeah, when it comes to torture, I think the Bashir episode's worse. O'Brien's, O'Brien's well, torture I mean, seemed kind of fun. <laughs> 
I guess the question to me isn't. I was more taking the question as like, which did you enjoy more, more than oh. which seemed more torturous? Oh, what should I enjoy more? Oh, just as an, as well, as a viewer, I enjoy. I probably enjoyed the Bashir episode. Actually, still, yeah, I'm gonna say the Bashir episode. Okay. I, the Brian episode with the time travel stuff. I like you. You know my thing on time travel. It just it, it's painful. <laughs> so, who is your character of the week this week, Matt? Our man Bashir. Yeah, yeah. I I really wanted to give it to a Babylon Five character this week because uh, I didn't really feel like anybody in DS Nine covered themselves in glory. Nobody really covered themselves in glory on uh, Babylon Five, but Garrick was back on the show, and it was delightful to have Garrick back. So I'll go with Garrick. My episode of the week goes to and now for a word. Now for a word was a kind of weird episode, but definitely a lot more coherent, a lot more interesting, a lot better than a distant voices. I would say. Well, if you if you read JMS talking about it, it was groundbreaking science fiction to have this kind of idea put in, put in onto film. I I think it's cute that JMS thinks that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's, it's uh, if 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 you if you're following this podcast, go back and check out the Lurker's Guide because it it goes deep into what JMS was thinking at the time, and sometimes it's just uh, it's just weird. It's as weird as some of the stuff on the show. <laughs> I mean, I think it's uh, just a good reminder that it's sometimes necessary and important to separate the art from the artist. So next week, Bob, we have In the Shadow. Ooh, that sounds portentous. In the Shadow of Zahadum. Ooh, Shadow of Zahadum. And then Through the Looking Glass. Do you know what Zahadum is yet, Matt? Yeah, it's that planet. Okay, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. So. I just wanted to check. Yeah, and it's... Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, we had a whole episode like So we're going to Zaha Doom and we're going to the Mirror Universe, it sounds like. Oh, well, through the looking glass. I mean certainly it, but with the title it sounds like a mirror a mirror universe episode, but I might be wrong. You're right, it is a mirror universe episode. Alright. Well this has been the Galaxy's Greatest Podcast about the two great nineties space station shows, Babylon Five versus DS nine. We are a part of Uncanny Treks. I am Bob from Cascadia. That's Matt from the Southland. Have a great night, everybody. Thanks for listening.